Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing to make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians in our series called When the Church is a Mess. Uh, Paul is addressing certain problems in the Corinthian church. And uh, we are in a, an especially troublesome section of um, this book. In fact, I almost lost heart and I almost just skipped ahead. One of the great things about being a preacher is you get to pick whatever you want to preach on. And so, and you know, there's a big temptation. I was just like, you know what? I did, I did, you know, sexual morality in the church in chapter five and, and, you know, church discipline and lawsuits and sexual morality last week. And, you know, five reasons why, uh, why that's a big deal. And man, do I really have the, the gumption to go for chapter seven? And I thought about just, uh, lumping it all into one, you know, and cause there's about five issues in chapter seven that are really touchy. And I thought, man, I could just get it all done in one. And that was actually my plan. And uh, I got two of them kind of taken care of. And then I had two of them, and I was like four pages over already. And so I, I still kept the two, but I backed it off. And the sermon's only an hour and a half, and so we'll get those two out of the way. Not really. Um, Think about this week that uh, my dad was saved when he was 28 years old. I was 8 years old. And uh, he was radically saved, transformed. I got to see his life just just change in so many ways as he was born again. And uh, one of the cool things is we we were the family that after he got saved, we went to church. I mean, I'm talking, if there was a six-foot blizzard, my dad would drive the tractor and blaze the trail out in the country. We did 12 miles out in the country. And my mom would drive the four-wheel drive behind the trail. I mean, we, we were at church, you know. I mean, he was just committed to that. And uh, he's an elder in his church now. He's just a great man of God. And, and so that was us, you know. And so the time from I was 8 till I was 18, while I lived at home, I was at church. And so I knew the Bible stories. I knew, I knew, uh, I knew Bible verses. I, I memorized. I, I could memorize, I, you know, I had memorized Bible verses in church and in the children's program, the youth program. But I wasn't a Christian, but I knew these Bible verses. But here's what I never knew. No, I don't ever remember one sermon about, about sexuality. I, just, I don't, not one. And I think I would have remembered that. You know, I, I mean, I, I know I don't remember all of them, but I think I would have remembered that, you know. But I had no, and, and my mom and dad, maybe you had a mom and dad like this, and I'm not faulting my mom and dad. They did an incredible job uh, raising me. I'm so thankful for them. They never talked to me about it either, you know. And, and so here's what happened. I learned everything as, as a young person. I learned everything about sexuality that I knew from television and from the guys at school, okay. And so what that translated it to was everything was wrong, all right. Everything I knew was wrong. It was not, it was not in God's, you know, priorities. It was not with God's values. It was just all wrong. And, and so I don't want to skip this. I want to just trudge, trudge through and just ask your prayers that we do a good job with this. And, um, I don't know what next week will bring. There's more, uh, there's lots of stuff on actually divorce and and remarriage in the rest of chapter seven. I'm not sure what we're going to do with that. Um, I just can't wait till chapter eight, idolatry. Yay. You know, (laughs) Isn't that funny? <laughs> All right, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. 
But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you, God, for marriage. I thank you for singleness. I thank you, Jesus, that in whatever situation of life that we find ourselves, that we can serve you and that you have an incredible plan for us. Thank you, Jesus, that there are no second-rate citizens in the kingdom of heaven, but that you've got an incredible plan for everybody in every stage of life. Uh, God, I just thank you for um, the gift of marriage and family. And, uh, Lord, that's a precious thing. And, Lord, we want to handle that rightly. Uh, We want to handle it biblically. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to navigate through that today. In Jesus' name, we ask for the Holy Spirit's teaching. Amen. Last week, uh, we had over here on this, this kind of, uh, uh, on this, this um, pendulum, side of this pendulum, I guess you could say, we had that in, in, the, in the city of Corinth, there was all kinds of sexual immorality. Uh, I told you last week about, you know, cultic prostitution and just, just all kinds of filth. And so Paul writes what he wrote in chapter 6 to kind of combat this whole area of immorality that he's dealing with in, in the church and that the church is dealing with. And so last week we talked about why it's a big deal, why sexual morality is a big deal. We talked about the one flesh union that God has created in marriage. We talked about how a believer's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that a believer is joined to Jesus Christ in union with Christ, and, and that, 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 that the gift of sex is a one flesh union. And so we talked about these big principles of immorality and, and why that's such a big deal, Okay. So that's on one side of the pendulum. Now, evidently, there were some in the church who, who understood Paul's message there. They understood, man, this is a huge deal. Immorality is a huge deal. And so they had swung way over here to the other side. We, we tend to do that, don't we? Don't we tend to do that? We kind of react, and sometimes we'll swing too far. So they had swung all the way to the other side, and they're like, okay, man, sex is so bad, and, and, and immorality is so bad, that we're just going to completely go away from it. We're going to say that everybody should abstain. And so they wrote Paul and they asked him this question. They, they were asking him, is it good? This is in verse one. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relationships, a sexual relation uh, with, with a woman? And Paul answers, okay, he says, yes, first of all, it is good to be single. Now, when Paul talks about being single, everybody's single at some point, right? I mean, no, nobody comes out of the womb with, with a bride, you know? I mean, so everybody's single at some point. What, what Paul is really talking about is the gift of singleness, okay? That's, that's the way he refers to it. Look in verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind, one of another. And so Paul is basically saying, look, I have the gift of singleness. The gift of being content without a family, without a husband, without a wife, without a sexual relationship. And, and that's called the gift of singleness. All right. Now, now, that's a very different way of looking at singleness than the way the world looks at singleness. Okay. Here's the way the world looks at singleness. The world looks at singleness as, woohoo, I'm not accountable to anybody. You know, I'm not accountable to anybody. I don't, I don't have to take care of anybody. I can do whatever I want. I can jump from relationship to relationship, just have a good time. Okay. That's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about the gift of 
singleness. That actually is probably most likely sin, okay? The kind of singleness that the Bible is talking about, which is a wonderful thing, which is a gift from God, is being able to set your entire life aside to serve the Lord, okay? Not being hindered with some of the other, other things that a married person is hindered with and be able to, being able to devote your entire attention and love to Jesus Christ, okay? That's what the Bible talks about when it talks about the gift of singleness. Let, let me tell you out of this passage, let me give you two great single people in the history of the world, okay? One was Jesus Christ, all right? Now, Jesus Christ lived a full life, a short life, only 33 years, but I don't think anybody could argue that Jesus did not live an impactful life, all right? I mean, in his short life, he managed to redeem humanity back from their sins, all right? Poured out his life, built a spiritual family, incredible relationships. The guy was certainly not lonely. In fact, the guy had to get up at two in the morning just to get a little alone time because he always had people around him, okay? Jesus had the gift of singleness. Didn't have a wife, didn't, was never married, was never had a part of a physical relationship with the opposite sex. Jesus was a perfect example of the gift of singleness. Okay, how about Paul? Okay, the guy writing this, he's saying he has the gift of singleness and that he has devoted his entire life to serving the Lord. Now, was Paul a lonely guy? Absolutely not. I mean, Paul, Paul always had people with him, always had spiritual relationships, always traveling with people, mentoring people, discipling people, had spiritual sons. Remember, he called Timothy, he called Titus, he called John Mark. He, he referred to those guys as his sons, you know, in, in the Lord. And that he had built these incredible relationships with them in which he poured his life into them, okay? And, and so what Paul is saying by, by, by the gift of single, is having this incredible opportunity, not being cumbered by, by the responsibilities and the time commitments and the financial commitments of marriage and family and being able to pour yourself out for other people in the life of the kingdom. You, you see, with singleness comes an opportunity, doesn't it? We'll talk about that in a minute, but you have an opportunity. You know, you, you're feeding how many when you're single? One, you know, you're feeding one, not seven, one, okay? You know, how many people are you housing? You're housing one, you know? If I was single, I don't even think I'd need a house. I just get, I got my tent and I got a bag, you know, I got a, a, one of those, you know, 30, 20 degree bags. I'd probably buy a zero one for, you know, December. But I, man, I'd just pitch it wherever. I'd come to your house, you know? You just get in the backyard. I mean, what, what else would I need? You know, when you're single, you don't need very much. That's what Paul's saying. You don't need very much. You know, you have all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of time, all kinds of, of ways. Now, how, what you do with that is really an indication of your heart, right? Now, some people take singleness and they're like, woohoo, no responsibilities, no one to answer, answer for, no one to take care of, no accountability. You know what that means? That means I'm going to play video games for 12 hours a day and, and, and eat at McDonald's, you know, only. You know what I mean? That, that's the way a lot of people would look at singleness. That's not what Paul's talking about. That, Paul says, what I'm going to use my freedom for is to be completely devoted to the Lord. What do you use your freedom for? That's a great question for you, by the way. What do you, when you find yourself having freedom, what do you use it for? Okay, Listen to the way Paul talks about singleness and about marriage. In verse 32 of this same chapter, chapter 7, um, here's what he says. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, the single guy, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. You see how he describes a single guy there? Man, this guy, man, he's worried about how to please the Lord. Man, how do I serve the Lord? How do I honor the Lord? Okay? Verse 33, but the married man, he's anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Okay? Amen, married men? 
Well, man, we spend a lot of our time thinking about how to please my wife. You know, how am I going to do that? You know, absolutely clueless about it, but we're, we're thinking about it. Okay. Verse 34, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried, the single guy, the betrothed woman, the single woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Okay. Do you see the way Paul talks about singleness? He talks about it as, as being able to pour your life out. For, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I wish that single people could see this. So many times, we, we don't have a good picture of singleness in the church, okay? It gravitates toward, toward two extremes that are both wrong, okay? On the one side, we have the world's view of singleness, which is, hey, I'm free from any responsibility. I'm just going to have a good time. Uh, I'm just going to cater myself. Just going to live irresponsibly, okay? That's the world's view of singleness. And, and, and the, the church's view, too many times, it shouldn't be this way, but it often is. And the reason it often is, is because we focus on family a lot in the church, don't we? You know, and there's good reason for that. Most of you are going to be married. Most of you have been married. Most of you might be married at some point. And so there's a reason for that. But what happens sometimes is single people in the church often feel like, man, I'm, I'm the plague, you know? I mean, I don't fit in with anybody. I don't, I, I don't mesh with anybody. I'm not, I'm not a family like everybody else. And so they almost look at themselves as is not as being a second-rate person in the kingdom of heaven, which is completely not right, okay? What Paul is saying is, as a single person, you have great opportunity to impact the kingdom of God, to build friendships with other believers, mentor other believers, mentor kids at risk, be free to, 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 to Bible studies and give money to missions and pray more and study more, and, and, and it's a good thing. And let me just tell you this. Uh, singles need to know this. Families love singles, Okay? No matter if you're a widow or a widower or a young person that's not married yet, families love singles. A lot of times, singles feel like, you know, I don't, I don't fit with other families. You fit better than other families fit, okay? Uh, I mean, that, that's the truth. That's the truth. You know why? Because you're freed up to minister to that family. Okay, you, you see, when we have somebody like uh, uh, somebody like uh, Daniel Castor or Bobby Castor, then when they come over to our house, you know what they do? They minister to our kids. I mean, the kids love them because they play with our kids. Okay, you know what happens when we have another family, a big family? Like we have Kirkendalls. We have Kirkendalls over sometimes. You know what happens when we have the Kirkendalls over? We, we've got five kids. They have four kids. You know what we do? We, we just chase our kids, okay? We really don't fellowship with one another, you know? I mean, Kathy's like chasing Luke around, you know? Caleb threw up in the bathroom. I'm sorry, you know? She's going after the other one, and, and Emma's chasing Haven around, you know? And, I mean, we're, we're not, you know? But when we, have, when we have someone who's a single over, what are they doing? They're just ministering to our kids. They're ministering to our family. They're ministering to my wife. You know, it's, it's hard for our family to go out with another big family to lunch, you know? I mean, let's, let's say we, you know, we got seven. You know, let's say we have a family of, uh, that's got three kids. They've got five. Counting that up. That's 12, you know. So, so we, we need a table for 12 on Sunday, you know. There's some places can't even hold that. Go to Taco Mile, they don't have any families for, 12, for tables for 12. They don't have any fa- tables for 10, you know. I mean, what we end up doing is, all right, you three kids are over here, you know. And you three kids, you're over on this side. You cut his food, make sure he don't, you know, make sure he eats, you know. And we're going to sit over here, you know. And, and, and I mean, that, that's kind of the way it is. And so, so Paul, what Paul's point here is you have incredible opportunity to minister to families, to minister to singles, to minister to everybody, really. And, and when you're married, what Paul's saying is you have additional responsibilities, you know, when you're married, you know what you need to do? You need to take care of your spouse first. 
I mean, here's the reality of marriage, okay? And I believe this from the Bible. The reality of marriage is Emma comes before all of you, okay? That's just the reality of marriage. You're my church. You're my congregation. I love you. But Emma comes first. If Emma's got a crisis and you got a crisis, Pastor Chris is going to handle your crisis. I got to handle Emma's crisis, okay? If you got a crisis and Callie's got a crisis, Pastor Chris is going to handle Callie's crisis. I'm going to handle your crisis, all right? I mean, we want to minister to one another, but we minister to our spouse first because we got to love our wife as Christ loves the church. That's the whole deal of marriage. And so there's just things that a married person must consider that a single person doesn't have to consider. You know, I can't have eight guys over for discipleship every night. You know why? Because my wife lives in the same house as I do, okay? And that's not good for her and it's not good for our kids. And we'd have a disaster there, okay? If you're a single person, if you want to do that, you can do that, okay? And so, 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 so marriage, there, there are responsibilities that come with it. Not only are there responsibilities, but marriage is hard. I, I mean, do you, do you notice what Paul says in verse 32? He said, um, I want you to be free from anxieties. <laughs> anxieties, you know, that's, he's talking about marriage, you know? The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. I, I mean, that's the reality of marriage. And you know why that's the reality of marriage, that it's hard? Yeah, I, there's a real theologically complex answer to this. Okay, are you ready? So think hard with me here. The reason marriage is hard is because you married a sinner. What were you thinking, Okay. You married a sinner. I mean, that's what you did. You married somebody that's broken. You know, you married somebody that they get sick and they get depressed and they're weak and they're needy and, and they have problems and they don't think right all the time. Just like you and your, 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 your spouse, they married a sinner, okay? And so what that results in is that marriage is hard and it's going to demand your attention. It's going to demand you, you giving, you praying, you searching the scriptures, you taking care of your spouse. I mean, it's going to demand all those things, which is going to demand time and effort of you. If, listen, if you don't want to put time and effort into your marriage, don't get married. I mean, really. I mean, if you're not going to put time and effort into the deal, then just don't, don't get, be single, okay? Maybe that's what God's telling you because it's going to demand of you time and effort and energy, okay? Now, the second thing happens when you get married often, not always, but often, children follow from the marriage relationship, right? I mean, generally, that's what happened, and it's God's plan. It's not a bad thing. God told us in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. I tell you what, Fifth Street has gotten carried away with that command. I mean... <laughs> I was telling them there's a time where I knew all the kids in our church. You know, I can remember that time where I knew, I knew all their names, you know. Man, I go to Fifth Street, there's like five new ones every week. You know, I'm like, where did they come from, you know? I don't know their names. I don't know who they are. I couldn't match them up with their folks, you know. But, but, but it's a good thing, okay? Kids are a good thing. But here's the deal about kids. More responsibility, right? Now, wife, husband is first, okay? Kids come next. You got a ministry to your family, Every guy in this room, if you're a born-again believer, you're a pastor to your family, okay? I'm your pastor at the church. Pastor Chris is your pastor here. Pastor Andrew is your pastor. But you know what? You're a pastor to your family. You got to minister to your family. You got to take care of your family. Some of that's, some of that's just practical things like financially, okay? If you're a married person, you, need to, you probably need to make a certain income to take care of your family. Why? Because kids get sick and they break their arms and they got braces and shoes and, and Pop-Tarts. And man, we, we go through four boxes of maple brown sugar life a week, okay? That, that's not counting the other boxes of cereals. That's just the one cereal, okay? Uh, I mean, that's just, that's just part of having a family. Uh, let me complain a little bit. Can I do that? You know, I'm preaching on what I want to preach. So let me, let me complain. Um, we were, we went to, had a little spring break getaway. We went to a, a museum, natural history museum, went to a state park. Anyway, we're coming back, went to a movie, uh, saw the Lorax in 3d, Dr. Seuss movie, you know, um, 
So we're coming back, and we just got done hiking around at this state park, Red Rock Canyon, coming through Hinton. And it's like 7 o'clock. We need to eat, okay? There's one restaurant in Hinton. That's all we could find, you know? And it's this Mexican restaurant. We didn't know what it was like. But we thought, well, we'll take it. It looked kind of like a taco factory. That's what it looked like to me. That's what I thought I was getting into. Well, we get in there, and it's kind of a sit-down restaurant. And so, you know, I said, okay, you know, it's a special time. We'll sit down, you know, we eat, and everybody gets what, you know, kind of what they want. And, and uh, I get the bill, you know, and with tip, which I gave a tip because she did a good job. And the, and the meal was fantastic. I mean, I, let me just brag on it. It was a fantastic meal. $86 did I come out of there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought, you know. Now, if I was single, I could have ate everything I wanted there for $8.60, right? <laughs> But instead, I come out of there. I know what it was. They came and said sopapillas. And a lot of times, sopapillas are free with the meal. That's what I was kind of thinking. I think these were like 10 bucks a piece or something, you know. I don't know. But anyway, anyway, 86 bucks, you know. But that, that's part of having a family, okay? That's part of having a family. If I were single, let's think about time, okay? If I, let's think about time. If I were single, I, I would spend, I bet, no more than five minutes a day washing dishes, Okay? Part of that is I just use them over, you know, eat cereal, just rinse the dude out, turn it over, you can use it again tomorrow, you know. As it is now, a dishwasher load full, I mean, packed full every day, okay? Every day we run a dishwasher at least once a day. In about 20 to 30 minutes washing the big stuff. You know, I, I spend about 10 minutes in the morning getting the big stuff washed up from breakfast and about, about 20 minutes at night after supper. You know, okay, that's, that's about 45 minutes in dishes a day versus five minutes if you're saying, I mean, that's just reality. That's, that's, just, that's just reality family. You guys know that. You know, my wife spends from noon to midnight uh, every day. She's got something in the washer, something in the dryer. Okay, I mean, not that she's like standing there the whole time, but she's always got something washing and drying. Uh, part of that's because Haven wears 17 outfits a day, you know, <laughs> literally, you know, I mean, I mean, every 10 minutes she comes down, new dress, you know, and then every once, about once an hour she comes down, nothing, you know, then she comes back down, new dress, you know, you know, some of it's dress up stuff, some of it she pulls out of the closet, you know, so we got all this mound of laundry, you know, she managed to spill stuff, she got, gets a new dress on, spill, you know, and goes back up, you know, spill, you know, that's just, that's family, family, family. Uh, Emma spends the entire evening sometimes Sometimes 11 o'clock, tutoring the kids, you know, algebra and chemistry. And notice I said Emma. I don't do that because we want them to get A's, not D's, you know. So marriage is work, okay? Marriage is work. It's going to demand time and energy. Now, let, let, me, let me step back and say I'm not complaining, okay? I'm not complaining. I love being married. I love in a family. If I, could, if I could re-choose my life, I'd choose the same life. You know, I don't have the gift of singleness, I just know that. I don't have it. And many of you don't have that. Okay? Paul had it. Rejoice. God's given him a special gift, enabled him to do great things in the kingdom of God. I don't have that. I have a family, and I want a family, and I like having a family. I was talking with Kurt, my neighbor, and uh, he was talking about his wife was gone to Florida, and we were just talking about how we don't like it when our wives are gone, you know? And, and especially don't like it when our wives and kids are gone. You know, I mean, I kind of come home, and I wander around, and I look at all the rooms, and then I leave, you know? I don't even stay there when my family's not there. I go visit you guys, you know? Because I just, I don't know, I just, that's not, it's not my thing. It's not my gift, okay? And so Paul says, if you have the gift of singleness, that's great. It great, gives you great opportunities for the kingdom of God. However, however, for most people, that is not your gift. Okay? Notice what he says in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual morality. Okay? Most people don't have the gift of, of singleness. For most people, there, there's a drive within them um, to have a relationship, a marital relationship with another person. Okay? That's, that's generally 
mostly what happens. And so verse 2 says, because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Okay? Uh, Most people are not wired for singleness and the appropriate God-given desires that are in them. And notice, let's stop right there, the appropriate God-given desires. Here's what kind of ticks me off, okay? And this is why I think that I I go ahead and preach these sermons because... Everybody has a category, two categories, okay? You got this side, you got godliness, okay? So let's have a godliness box here. And over here, let's have an, an, an ungodliness, sinful box, okay? Now, where do we put things like lying? Well, that goes in the sinful box, right? And where do we put things like generous giving? Well, that goes in the godly box. And where do we put things like uh, uh, popping somebody in the nose? Well, that goes over here in the sinful box, right? Now, let me ask you this question. Where do we put sex? Now... Now, I know you're thinking through it and you're like, okay, I know it goes in the guy. Is this not true or not? As soon as I said that, didn't you almost gravitate over here? I think we do. Sometimes in the middle, yeah. But, but, but a lot of people, they, grab, they would put it over here. Now, now, listen. We should not take what God has created and give it to Satan. Okay? See, that's what bothers me. That's what that really bothers me is, is that God has created this incredible thing. God has created this thing that he says is good. That's for the marriage relationship. It's to bond a husband and wife together to get them through the tough times. It's to bring intimacy to the marriage and blessing to the family. And God has created it and God has called it good. And, and, and it ticks me off that Satan has hijacked that and he's twisted it and he's taken it out of marriage and, and, he's, and, and he's destroyed it in this, in this horrible mess And then most people, when they think of it, they put it over in the wrong box. And we shouldn't do that. As Christians, we should say, no, 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 no. God has created that. It has a place. It has a good place. It serves a good function. God is the giver of this gift. And we should sanctify it and make it holy and put it where it needs to be. Okay? So for most people... We have appropriate God-given desires and the purpose or the, the place for those desires is in the marriage relationship, okay? Now, within the marriage relationship, let, let, let's, let's learn what Paul's telling us here in 3 and 4. Paul's giving us instructions about the physical relationship in the marriage. And, and here's what he begins to teach us. He begins to teach us that, that, that the sexual relationship of a husband and wife really is nothing more but an overflow of the Christian life, okay? Now, let, let, let's, look, let's look at just the Christian life, okay? Philippians 2. I want to I camp out here for a second. How, what, what's the Christian life? How do we live the Christian life toward one another? It's an other-oriented life, okay? What that means is the Christian life is me caring about, investing in, thinking of, blessing, praying for, encouraging, affirming other people, okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that the Christian life? Okay, now listen to Paul. Listen to what he says here in Philippians 2. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. What does that mean? Don't keep score, okay? In your relationships, don't keep score, okay? Don't have your little scoreboard that says, you know, I helped so-and-so four times. He's helped me zero, you know. Uh, don't like him. Not, okay, don't have those. That's rivalry. That's conceit, okay? So, so it says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's a principle of the Christian life. I, I should think of you before I think of myself. I should look to, I, I should walk into my small group and say, how can I bless these people? I should walk into my church and say, what can I do to affirm and build up the faith of the people that are here? That's a, that's a principle of the Christian life, okay? Think of others before yourselves. Verse four, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. Where do we get this crazy idea that we ought to think of others before ourselves? We got it from Jesus, okay? 
Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, now listen to Jesus. Verse 6, who, this is Jesus' life, although he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Jesus have in his hand? He had in his hand King of kings and Lord of lords, the privileges of, of, of the divinity of God Almighty. That's what Jesus had in his hand, okay? He had in his hand heaven, glory, okay? But you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't clutch on to his rights. That's what a lot of us do, don't we? We're like, you know what I deserve? I deserve this. And if I don't, I'm holding on to it. By God, you can't pry it out of my hands, right? You know, you're going to treat me this way or I'm not going to be your friend. Okay, that, that's, that's the way most people live is, is with their fists like this. You know what Jesus did? He let go. He let go. He let go of heaven. He let go of glory. He let go of his rights. You know what he did? He came down. He was born in a barn in human flesh. And then did he demand his rights? Did, did, he, did he show his power and demand that, that he be king? And they put him in Rome? Did he take Caesar's place? No. You know what he did? He traveled around with nothing but the shirt on his back for 33 years and ministered to people. He gave his life as a servant to others. Even, even to the point where he gave his very life, his physical life, to buy your soul. Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood to redeem your sinful self to Christ. Okay, that, that's the example of Jesus, okay? So do you see the principle in the Christian life? Okay, this applies to everybody, all, all relationships. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to imitate Jesus. We're supposed to think of others before ourselves. We're supposed to give to others for ourselves. All right, now, go back to 1 Corinthians, okay? 1 Corinthians 7 Verses 3 through 4, 3, 4, and 5, although they seem strange, they're nothing more than the Christian life being lived out in a marriage. Okay? Let's read it again. Verse 3. The husband should give, uh, I'm sorry, the husband should give to his wife her, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, okay? All right, now, now, now what, what, what's Paul expressing there? He's expressing the Christian life lived out in a marriage, lived out in, in the sexual relationship, okay? It's the same principle, okay? Same principle, just lived out in marriage, okay? And it works like this. Jesus has poured into me, so I pour into others. I mean, that's the Christian life, isn't it? I pour into others, Jesus pours into me. I pour into others, Jesus pours into me. When I stop pouring into others, what happens? I think Jesus, to some degree, stops pouring into me, Okay? Because we're to be a conduit of the Holy Spirit. And, and in marriage, it's the same thing. In marriage, it's the same way. We pour into others. Christ pours into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, there is no relationship where there is greater opportunity to live out the Christian life than our marriage. Okay? Marriage is, is man, it's your greatest opportunity to serve. It's your greatest opportunity to pray for others, pray for somebody. I mean, who, who can you pray for more than your spouse? Who can you pray with more than your spouse? It's your greatest opportunity to forgive. Who's going to hurt you more than your spouse? Probably nobody, you know? Uh, I mean, as far as time after time after time after time. Who do, you, who do you have greatest opportunity to encourage, to affirm, to bless? It's your spouse. And so we live out the Christian life in our marriage first, okay? And what Paul's talking about is living the Christian life out in your sexual relationship. Now, what, what are people going to say? I mean, let me, let me, let me counter, okay, some, some arguments that I think I'm going to hear. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You, you, know, you know the argument there? The argument there is going to be, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. No, first of all, hey, what's mine is mine, okay? 
You see, a lot of times we're not like Jesus. We don't let go, do we? We, we got it in our hand, and we say, look, no, no, no. I'm tired. I don't have time. I work 70 hours a week. You know, I bring home a paycheck. I support this family. I'm worn out. I take care of the kids. Do, do you, see, you see where all those verses start? All those statements start with? They start with what? I. It's just I. And so husbands and wives are going to have conflict over this because, because you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, no, I, 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 this is mine, okay? Well, Paul's saying, no, 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 the Christian life lived out in the marriage looks like a husband who's focused on meeting his wife's needs, a wife who's focused on meeting her husband's needs, okay? And when that happens, it's a beautiful thing. When that doesn't happen, it can be a real damaging thing. Now, here, here's an argument that I think I'm going to hear. What if, what if I work hard to meet my spouse's needs and I don't get nothing back. Huh? Is that an argument? Yeah. I think it is, isn't it? I mean, that, that happens, right? Is look, okay, I obey Jesus here. And I work real hard to give to my spouse. And I work real hard to minister to my spouse. And I work real hard to meet the needs of my spouse. And then you know what they do? <laughs> they don't work hard to minister to me. Well, we don't have an example of, of what to do there in the Bible as far as in marriage. Which I'm really glad because then I just run into it sometime and I had to preach that too, you know. So, but we do have we do have similar examples of people who poured their lives into others and received nothing back. Let me give you let me give you one. Second um, Timothy four. Here's Paul. Paul's the guy that said here in verse six of Second Timothy four, "I'm already being poured out as a drink offering." Paul's life literally was poured out for others. You ever read the stuff that Paul went through? He was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten with rods, he was put in jail. I mean, all for the good of others. He just lived his life being poured out for others. Okay, now what happens when Paul needs others? Okay, verse 16 of 2 Timothy 4. At my first defense, okay, so Paul, Paul went to court in, in, front of, in front of Caesar, his life's on the line, his head's on the chopping block, like literally, okay? And, and he says, at my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Okay, see the situation? Paul's, Paul's invested, poured into, discipled, mentored, given to, all these people. What happens when he's in need? Nobody shows up. All right, how do you handle that? How do you handle that in marriage? When you've been investing, you've got to need nothing. How do you handle that? Well, look what Paul did. Verse 16. First of all, may it not be charged against them. What does that mean? Forgive. You know what Paul didn't do? Paul didn't say, okay, I see how it is. I'm remembering this, you know. You had meatloaf yesterday. You know what you're getting today? Whatever you're getting, you're going to fix it. You know, I mean, that's it. No, Paul didn't. He forgives. Verse 17, though, is the crucial key. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Everybody else deserted me. But look, the Lord stood by me. Okay, what, what, what's Paul laying out here? He's laying out a principle that says, you know what? You know what? When you give to others, you know what you can trust? When you do the right thing, when you're being obedient to Jesus, you can trust that Jesus will take care of you. Okay? One way or another, Jesus is going to take care of you. One way or another, Jesus is going to minister to you. One way or another, Jesus is going to take care of you. Okay? So, so number one, Jesus is going to take care of you. Number two, you'll be a powerful witness to your spouse. Okay? Now, there are, there are various reasons why our spouse doesn't minister to us, okay? It could be a time of depression. It could be just issues in their life. It, honestly, many times, let's just be honest about it, it's sin. How do I know that? 
Because I'm a sinner. <laughs> and there's times where I sin against my wife. There's times where I've not been there for her. I've not, I've not encouraged her. I've not prayed with her like I should have. You know why? Because I, I, I've gone through sin in my life. I've gone through tough times in my life where I'm just not right with the Lord. You know, I'm concerned with other things. I'm distracted. I'm whatever. Okay. And so that happens. Okay. When, when, when our spouse continues to give to us, you know what that is? That's a powerful witness to that spouse. First Peter three, one says, likewise, wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, hear that ladies, even if you're married to a guy and he doesn't obey the word, man, the guy's does not live in according to Jesus word. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Okay. So number one, Jesus is going to take care of you. Number two, you're a powerful witness to your spouse. Number three, you're a blessing to your family. Okay. This is, this is simple. This is simple math. Okay. Two selfish spouses, two, a husband and wife that are both selfish. That's a lot harder on a family than one selfish spouse. Okay. Now, one selfish spouse is hard on a family. Okay. The ripples of that go through the children. Don't think they don't. You know, the conflict in a marriage, the struggles in a marriage that ripples throughout the children's lives. But you know what? Two selfish spouses does not make that better, okay? It does not make it better. It does not make the conflict better. It does not make the harm to the children better, okay? And so whenever you're thinking about keeping score and go ahead and paying back, hey, just remember, you're hurting yourself, your spiritual life, and your family. Now, number four, okay? And this is kind of a point of, of, of just be careful here, okay? If mostly what I'm talking about is general situations in marriage. There are certain situations, not very many, but I've seen a few in which one of the spouses is just, I mean, they're not only not living for Jesus, but they're almost a little, maybe, I mean, we could say just kind of wicked about the thing. And, and if there's ever a time where, where a spouse says, okay, I know you're a Christian and I just read the Bible and it says that you're mine, you belong to me. Okay. And I just read your Bible and it says, you got to do whatever I say. And it just says that your body is mine. And, and if there's ever a situation where there's abuse happening from that, I, I don't think the Bible wants that. That's not, that's not what the Bible's saying, okay? And, and at that point, you need to get some help, okay? At that point, you need to, you need to find some counsel. You need to find some help, okay? Because that's, that's not what the situation is talking about here, okay? All right, now the question that a lot of people are going to ask is, is this. If both a husband and wife are living this way, okay? If they're both living this way, if they're both... You know, I'm for you, you're for me, okay, then, then who wins, okay? I mean, I've actually had that question, who wins, you know, okay? You want it this way, I want it this way, and if you're for me, and I'm for you, and you belong to me, and I belong to you, then who gets their way? Well, here's the cool deal, that's the wrong question. You see, because when you're living that way, then there isn't a conflict, okay? Everybody wins, okay? Because you're for me, and I'm for you. You see, what the conflict comes when I'm for me, and you're for you. You know, that's when the conflict comes. All right, quickly, we, we got we to keep going here. Um, so the, the question that Paul rolls into is, so first of all, um, it's good to be single if you have the gift of singleness. If you don't have the gift of singleness, God's created marriage. You should be in a marriage relationship. The sexual relationship is a good thing in the marriage relationship. It's healthy. Um, you should not deprive one another, except Paul gives an exception here. Look in verse 5. So do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So Paul imagined a situation in a marital couple's life where they, they do practice abstinence for, for 
for, here, here's, the, here's the qualifications. Number one, for a limited time, okay? So this is not forever, okay? Number two, by agreement, okay? So one spouse doesn't decide this, okay? This is not a deal with, hey, I decided something yesterday, you know? I mean, this, this is both, both husband and wife come to an agreement on that. And thirdly, it's for a specific purpose, okay? Limited time, by agreement, specific purpose. And notice the purpose, prayer, okay? Here's what I love about this. I, I, I love that even though the Bible exalts marriage, Jesus is always above marriage, okay? Don't make an idol out of your marriage. Don't make an idol out of your family. Don't make an idol out of your kids. Don't make an idol out of, out of, out of the sexual relationship. None of those things are God, okay? They're all helpful things within, within God's purpose for our lives, but none of them are God. And, and Paul envisions a time where a couple just, just sets aside almost their marital intimacy to focus on a time of prayer before the Lord. But then notice what Paul says. He says, by, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then, but then come together again. Okay, now why? Why come together again? For, for the reasons of spiritual warfare, actually. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, now here, here's what would be really cool if we could say. If we could say, you know what, church, we don't really have to deal with that because all of us are above falling in this area. Wouldn't that be great? If we could say that, we just say, everybody in Lincoln Avenue, all, you know, 380, 400 people today in all three services, we're all above that, okay? That'd be a really foolish thing to say. You know why? Because the Bible's given us some great men. David, how about David, okay? Here's a guy that's after God's own heart, a guy that, that, that was a sweet psalmist of Israel, but here's a guy who blew his life and family because of a temptation and a slip in the area of sexual immorality. So here's what's clear. What's clear is that Satan wants to destroy your marriage, okay? How do we know that? He's gunning for you. Look at that, verse 5. Satan may not tempt you because you lack self-control. He's gunning for your marriage. He's gunning for your family. Man, I, I, I think that Satan loves to destroy marriages, okay? The, the rest of this chapter is about divorce. Satan loves divorce, okay? He loves to rip a family apart. He loves to rip a daddy from his children. He loves to rip a mama from her children. Man, he loves to rip apart a family, okay? And, and if he can't rip it apart, you know what he loves to do? He loves to create conflict and coldness within that marriage relationship so that it's not what it's intended to be. And one of the ways he'll do that is through the area of sexual temptation. And so Satan's gunning for your marriage. And so let's just believe the Bible here. here I'll tell you exactly what the Bible's saying. You can read it. But it's saying that prolonged periods of abstinence by a married couple increase your risk of Satan taking one or both of you down. Okay? Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, the reason is, is because temptation, let's have a little lesson on temptation here. Temptation is fueled by desire. Okay? James 1.14 Real quick, hang with me. Almost done. You didn't want a separate sermon on all this, did you? Come on, go a little longer. Okay. James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured. Okay. Actually, in the Greek, it's a fishing term as well. Fishing and trapping. Okay. It is in, in English as well, but it is in Greek too. Okay, you, you know why? Because that's a great example, fishing, okay? What do fishermen know about fish? They know that fish have a strong desire for what? Food, right? They want to eat. That's what fish want to do. They have a strong desire to eat. So what does a fisherman do? A fisherman crafts a lie. He crafts something that looks like food for the fish, and he makes it look like food. He makes it move like food, and, and he lies to the fish, hoping that the fish will bite. The hook will be sunk, and it'll drag him to his death. 
That's what a fisherman does. It's exactly what Satan does, okay? Satan knows that you have what? You have desires. Are those desires bad? No, they're God-given, okay? But he knows you have them. And so you know what he's going to do? He's going to craft a lie, okay? And the lie in this case is immorality. The lie in this case is adultery. The lie in this case is pornography. And he's going to dangle it in front of, of a husband or a wife and, and tempt them that this is, a, this, is a, this is a way to satisfy your desires. And so, so Paul is saying, look, the husband and wife need to protect themselves from temptation by cultivating a healthy marriage relationship. Obviously, there's times when abstinence in marriage can't be helped. Prolonged illness, military deployment, someone's taken away with their job. Okay, I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about abstinence that comes about through bitterness or anger or unforgiveness or pride or some sort of bad theology about sex or a lack of effort toward the marriage. And couples need to guard against those things. Let me just wrap up. Um, something cool. In all of chapter 7, you know what you see? Nobody's for themselves. Did you notice that? So Paul talks about singleness. And what does he say? If you're, if you're single, well, who are you for then? You're for the Lord. You're not for yourself. You're not, you're not to play 12 hours and video games and surf the internet the rest of the day, you know? You're for the Lord. You, you work hard for the Lord. If you're married, who are you for? Well, you're for the Lord, but then you're for your husband. Or then you're for your wife, okay? And then you're for your family. But do you notice that in nowhere, nobody's for themselves. You know why no believer is for themselves? Hold on, this is great. Are you ready? Because Jesus is for you. That's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus is for you. Jesus' life and death and resurrection are given to you, okay? Jesus is for you. Jesus is pouring into you. Jesus is redeeming you. Jesus is giving you his Holy Spirit. Jesus is taking away your sin. Jesus is giving you his righteousness. Jesus is strengthening your faith. Jesus is given to you, okay? So Jesus is for us. And now as Christians, who are we for? We're for one another, okay? I'm for you. I'm to minister to you. I'm to take care of you. I'm to pray for you. I'm to encourage you. I'm for Emma. I'm for Emma. I'm for my kids. You're for your wife. You're for your husband. You're for your family. We're for each other, okay? And, and so, real simple principle. When you find yourself being for you, automatically you know you're not where you need to be spiritually, okay? You find yourself keeping score. You find yourself being for you. You, you find yourself saying, what about me? You're in the wrong spot. You're in the wrong spot. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for being for us. God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you, Jesus, that you lived a perfect life and you died a sacrificial death that we might be redeemed. God, I thank you for the gospel that you, you let go of, of the privileges of your divinity and you, you poured yourself out as a servant for us. God, help us to be for one another. God, I pray for that kind of spirit in, in our marriages and in our families and in our friendships. God, help us to be for one another. Guard us, God, against selfishness, against pride, against self-centeredness. God, help us to be for one another. God, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would, you would teach us and we'll just drive these truths home in our hearts. In Jesus' name.